this out as we go, okay? Um, but today we're looking at Chronicles. And, and Chronicles draws the reader, honestly, to look backwards. The reader is, is looking at what has occurred in the past, and the writer is, is striving to, to have those looking at this book to look at the past in order to move forward, in order to, to look forward with a right perspective. Chronicles was, was, as I was um, preparing this, a fun and exciting process, especially knowing that there was going to be a castle behind me while I was preaching this. I mean, that's pretty cool. Because as we look at, at Chronicles, there's going to be a correct focus that we look backwards with. As we look at it today, as we look at this study, we're going to remember... But we're going to remember from God's perspective. It's kind of a fun perspective to look back. We're also going to reflect. And our reflection should impact the way you and I worship God Almighty. And then as we remember and reflect, we're going to rejoice because we're going to be looking ahead and we are going to be anticipating the promises of God, what is coming, and we can do that with joy. The context of, of this book takes place approximately around 450 B.C. or so. It's always hard to guess. I mean, we, we speculate on some of these things because they don't go, on the first day of this, of that, I wrote this book. They don't do that. But the time frame is somewhere around there. And at this point in Israel's history, all the kings have come and gone, both Israel and Judah. They have come, they have gone. The people have been taken into exile. Israel to, with the Assyrians and Judah with the Babylonians. Seventy years of captivity, just as the prophet Jeremiah declared would happen. And now the people are coming back to the land. They're coming back and, and Jerusalem has no walls and no temple. There's excitement mixed with discouragement. Wonder about tomorrow, what tomorrow holds. Chronicles, as it's written, is one of the last books of the Old Testament to actually be written. By this time, all of the, the poetry and, and wisdom books have been written. Most of the prophets have written and, and come forward and presented themselves both to Israel and Judah. Chronicles is written right before that intertestament period, that, that 400 years of silence, as, as it's called. The only books that would probably be written after this would be Ezra, Nehemiah, and, and Malachi. And we come to this book, and... 
There's a perspective. It's written most likely by, by Ezra. There's no way to prove that one way or another, but Ezra was a priest. We'll look at him more in depth next week. But the, the tone and, and verbiage in this book is, is very priestly-like. There is a focus on that. And, and as we come to Chronicles, once again, it was written in one scroll, one book. When it was translated into the Septuagint is when it was split into two. And we have First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, so you knew which order to read them in. But the thought and, and the, the emphasis of the book is one complete thought. It's actually a long book when you read it that way. But as we, we approach Chronicles, as you read through it, it's real easy just to kind of discard it. It's tempting to start reading these things and go, I've already read this. We've already seen this. And just kind of to, to toss it off. And when you're reading it closely like that, you, you tend to see that and think that. But as we zoom out, and this has been a fun study for me, to, to zoom out and go, what is the big picture? It's interesting that certain things come into focus, certain uh, things emerge that make a powerful statement. There's certain things that are intentionally absent as, as we approach this, this book of Chronicles. Real briefly here, and I'm going to step over here uh, because I need this, but we're going to compare some of the books of, uh, or the two books of Kings and Samuel. Because as you go through Chronicles, you realize very quickly that there is information and things that are almost verbatim in this book of Chronicles. And we're going to do a quick comparison as we go through. Samuel, first of all, remember this? Remember that, that chart there of Samuel? And as we look at Samuel, there's an emphasis on Samuel's life and, and what occurred there. But also the disobedience and uh, being punished and obedience being blessed. There's that contrast. And we looked at that as we looked at that. We also looked at the proud versus the humble. And those comparisons were there throughout the book. But as we look at the same events in Chronicles, we notice that really the focus is on the blessing of obedience. Samuel is actually not even really spoken of. Saul just a little bit, but David has emphasized greatly. As we go through this, we, we see that there is a, an emphasis on the eternal throne. We're looking forward to something greater. When we look at kings, kings was an exciting one. That would have been a cool one to have a castle behind you too, right? Okay, but in, in kings, remember we looked at the idolatry and sin. The, the message of the prophets, yeah, you can still see that there. The message of the prophets was both to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And, and they were dealing with this, striving with the people to repent. And it shows the hearts of the people going after other gods. Disobedience, division, and the dispersion was an emphasis throughout the, the book of Kings. And honestly, it was, it was discouraging to look at that book. 
the prophets were a center focus, but as we come to Chronicles, really we don't, we don't see much of the prophets or their message. In fact, the emphasis is greatly on what the kings did as God had commanded. As we look at this, we don't see the dis disobedience and division there, but we see that there is a focus no longer on Israel, but Judah. God is working, but we see that there's certain things that we just, we are not seeing. We are seeing history from the perspective of God and what God is doing in the bigger picture. Remember the timeline that we had of all the kings. And remember the, the emphasis on the prophets and where they were ministering. The emphasis on division within the kingdom. All because of their sin. And the kings that would not, despite the messages of Elijah and Elisha and, and so many others, they would not soften their hearts towards God. And we would look at the, the Judah, the, the kingdom of Judah, and there was some that would. Well, as we look at Chronicles, it's interesting. We, we virtually see nothing of the northern kingdom. God has dealt with them. They're done. Their narrative is written. But God brings out and focuses on, on David and Solomon there, there's an emphasis on these kings who did right in the eyes of the Lord. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But God values obedience. He remembers obedience. And all of a sudden we see in this book of Chronicles, the temple of the Lord takes center stage. There, there's an emphasis of, of temple worship. How Israel had not. But Judah would come in and come out, ebb and flow into that. As we look back and, and remember these things, I, I pondered how to really jump into Chronicles. What passage of scripture I would take you to first? And, and as I did, honestly, there, there had to be one more thing you and I remember as we jump into Chronicles. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I'm used to a pocket here. And it's, man, what did they do without pockets? I don't know. Genesis 3.15, if you'll recall, occurred right after the fall. Man had sinned. Separating man from God. Our sin does that. But God in His grace, in verse 15 of chapter 3, says this, And I will put enmity between you, He's speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. As we read those words, we understand that there is something that's going to occur, and, and Satan at some point will be crushed. 
There's a promise of something to come, and we begin to look at the seed. You flip over to chapter 8, and we see the narrative of Noah. The sin on earth was so rampant, God sent a flood to destroy, wipe out man, animal, and creation with a massive flood. Spared in the ark, Noah and his family, they come out, and in verse 20, it says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The promise of the seed would continue forward. You turn the page over... Too many pages. To chapter 12. And Abraham comes on the scene. God gives this promise to Abraham. Elaborating on this promise. And he says to Abraham. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you. I will curse. And in all the families of the earth. Will be. And in you. All the families of the earth. Will be blessed. In your seed, Abraham, will come one where all families of the world, Jew and Gentile alike, will be blessed. You go to the end of Genesis, Israel, or Isaac, or sorry, Jacob, is on his deathbed. And he's blessing his sons. He comes to Judah. His son Judah. And he says this in verse 10 of 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The book of Chronicles. We, we begin this book with a fascinating nine chapters of genealogy. The very first person in the genealogy is Adam. It goes all the way back to Genesis. It goes all the way back to the beginning. And we look at Adam and we follow that genealogy. It's one of the most detailed genealogies we have in Scripture Right at the doorstep of the New Testament where Matthew and Luke, their genealogies put together, we see how God has kept his promise from the very beginning. And as we go through this, we see there is a focus on Judah and Benjamin. 
We see that in through this genealogy, there is a focus on the Levitical tribe. You're like, why does this matter? Why would we spend time thinking about these things? Because you and I need to understand that we serve a God regardless of how long it takes who keeps his word. God keeps his word. I think some of you need to hear that this morning. Because you come to the promises of the scripture and you question. The key individuals as we look at this book are Judah and Benjamin and, and the Levites. The Levites were the ones who were, were over the worship, the sacrifices. And there's a focus on the kings. David and Solomon and the kings that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It's a beautiful picture as we look at Chronicles, as we look backward, looking forward, to understand that there is a Messiah who will come who will not only be king, but will be our high priest. He will draw his people into worship. He will be the sacrifice. We see that beautifully emphasized in the book of Chronicles. Truly, after we come to through that, that genealogy, which I'll admit was very hard to read this week, especially with all this, I may have just listened to it and... Yeah. But after you get through that, there's an emphasis, and we see David come on the scene. And we see Solomon. But as we look at David and Solomon, we see the focus on the temple with those kings. It's interesting, as you look at Chronicles, we're not reminded of David's sin with Bathsheba. We're not reminded of his murdering of his friend Uriah. We're not told about all those years he spent running from Saul. We are reminded of one instance where David decides to take a census. But even in that, the sin that he does in counting his people, building up his own pride, giving himself over to the mercy of God, even in the punishment we see a focus on the temple. It's interesting, in, in chapter 17, we are reminded that through David, we will see the Messiah. Look what it says, 17 verse 11. When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you. One of your descendants. Not Solomon. Not Josiah. He was cool. 
will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. Saul doesn't even get his name. But I will settle him in my house, in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. What a beautiful reminder to the people as they come back from exile, as they come back knowing they have just been disciplined for their worship of foreign gods. And they come back and they are reminded of this. God made a promise. And then David blows it. But David throws himself on the mercy of the Lord. And in chapter 21, God calls for David to sacrifice. Verse 22, it says, Then David said to Onan, O man, Give me the site of this threshing floor, that I will build on it an altar to the Lord. For the full price you shall give it to me, that the plague may be restrained from the people. Omen said to David, Take it! Take it for yourself and let the Lord, the king, do what is good in his sight. See, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering I will give it all but David said to Omen no but I will surely buy it for the full price for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering which cost me nothing that right there is a beautiful sermon in itself of sacrifice and worship. It's interesting though, David purchases this property. This very piece of property is where the temple would be built. The temple mount. And the offering is pleasing to God and God relents. But once again, the focus is on that temple, the worship of the people. And as we look at, at David and Solomon, David prepares the temple. Solomon builds the temple. As you look at the narrative of Solomon building this temple, it's almost verbatim as, as it described of the tabernacle, the process and what Solomon does. It's beautiful. And you almost feel like you're looking back once again. But through God's perspective. And then we look at these kings. The kings. And the emphasis is on the ones who bring reform to the land. Reform is, is making changes to improve. They made changes to improve their worship to God, their relationship with God. Truth be told, you know what? I think the church in America needs some reform. We need to change our hearts. 
Worship is restored. When you sing the songs on Sunday morning, is it just to get the right melody, to say the right words? Or do you truly think about what you are saying? Do you truly think about the one that you are worshiping in that song? In your prayers, is it an act of worship? Or is it merely a a resource for request? Give me, give me, give me. In your reading of the word, is it out of just, well, i got to get it in today, or is it because, God, I want to know you more? And these kings would draw the nation, the people, back into worship. And Passover, Passover is once again remembered under those other kings. It was forgotten. God's like, no, remember. Here in just a little bit, we get to go and remember. Our remembrance is an important thing of our worship with God. The last chapter. Honestly, it was a fascinating chapter to read because all of a sudden you wrap up 70 years of of exile and captivity, being hauled off. I mean, all of that in one chapter. It's like, well, that wasn't the emphasis, was it? It will be in some of the other books we look at. But the emphasis is on the return. The people come back. God is true to his word as he gave it to Jeremiah. They come back into the land and the last verses, the last two verses summarize this. Throughout the book of of Chronicles, we have seen an emphasis on the Levites, the priests, the temple, the worship. And look at the last two verses. It's interesting because we're going to look at these verses again next week because this is how Ezra opens. But it says, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. I want to stop right there. This is a pagan king. This is a global dictator. I I want you to see this. In order for God's word to come about, God stirred his heart. If that doesn't encourage you today, I, I don't know what will. God will work his purpose. And there is nothing you and I can do to stop that. I, I, I love that. There's another sermon right there. Man, so many good sermons in this book. But it goes on. So that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom. Can you believe God actually could stir a king to send out a proclamation? And also... 
put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. What a proclamation! What a way to end this book. As people are reading this, they're going, oh my goodness. Wow. You know, that brings us to our reflection. We look back, but what do we reflect on? What is the purpose as they would have read Chronicles, they would have come to chapter 7, verse 14, one verse that I'm sure you have heard. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. We have pulled this out of context so many times and applied it to America. God's speaking to Israel here. And as they read this, they understand we have to humble ourselves. There's a principle there for us for sure, but God is speaking to Israel, repent, be humble. And he draws out all those kings who had humble hearts before God. And in Chronicles 16, 9, look at this, it says, or 2 Chronicles, sorry. I forget that there's two of them still. Okay. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those who heart, whose heart is completely his. Remember what God admired about David? He had a heart for the Lord. You may have been here all week, 60 hours, contributing to VBS. You may be here all week this next week. You may serve in soup kitchens. You may do all these things for God on the outside. How's your heart? You're like, does that really matter? Yeah, it does. I will tell you with set, set up and all this week, this message really struggled coming together. I, I want to challenge your heart right now. Because I needed to challenge my heart. There's so many things that we do in this life that are basically like this. I mean, if you came in this morning, you're like, oh my goodness, they built a real-life castle. You were fooled. This right here, it's a facade. Little pieces of wood and paper. Strong paper, it helps. But paper nonetheless. 
its value? Not much. And so often in our lives, we ourselves reflect Samuel and Kings pouring into our energy, our efforts, our everything God has given us for the things that are a facade. For people to see. And some of the facades are really impressive. My goodness, some of us can even stand up and be pastors and put up a facade. And God looks down, He sees kings over an entire nation of Israel. Ten tribes versus two tribes. The world looks at that and goes, wow. God's perspective. It's a facade. God looks at the heart. God looks at the worship. God looks at the temple. Do you realize you and I are called the temple of the Holy Spirit? He comes, and at the moment you and I enter into a relationship with Him, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit indwells us. What does that temple look like? I find it fascinating as, as Judah returns. In recorded history, they would never again... Worship the Baals and Asherahs. Oh, no, 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 no. We won't do that again. We don't want to go into exile. My goodness, right? So we will put up a facade. We will become so religious. We will fool God. Because, shoot, we fooled ourselves. Why not him? And God is never interested in religion. From the very beginning, it's all about a relationship. Our worship of Him, our recognition of who He is. He wants real, He doesn't want fake. And we're so good, church, at presenting fake. Those kings that brought reform, brought relationship. They humbled themselves because they saw their sin. They saw the way they had, had deviated, left the Lord. God desired relationship so much as we look at rejoicing over the future. He wouldn't send more instruction. He wouldn't send stone tablets that says, here's how to have a relationship. He sent his son. And the relationship had to come at a cost. So you know what he did? He paid the cost. That's the extent he wants a relationship with you and I.
They would look to the temple that was going to be built and they would rejoice. But there was a temple that was coming, one that could never be torn down. Jesus said, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We worship through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. We look to kingdoms, we look to homes, we look to retirements, we look to everything except Jesus in this day and age. I love that there's a castle up here. Oops. And it's on fire. Because so often we put our hope in castles and walls and the things that will burn up. Instead of a relationship. I don't think I used any of my notes the last two pages. But church, this is what's on my heart. As I read Chronicles, I saw what God found important when he looks back on my life, when he looks back on your life, what is he going to find that he says, wow, Jed, I love this. This is what my heart is, Jed, yes. And what things will just fade into history? We're coming this morning to the Lord's Supper. And honestly, this sometimes feels like a facade to me. I mean, I at least have a bigger cracker. The time of communion was a time for the body of Christ, the family of God, to come together, to fellowship, to remember. And as we remember, we would rejoice. As we remember, we would appreciate. I don't want this to be a facade this morning. It's not a meal, but I want it to be real for you. Chronicles remembers, reflects, and rejoices. The day as we come to this, I want us to remember by the way, if you didn't get one as you came in, just raise your hand and the ushers will get one to you. But we come to this and we remember the relationship our God paid so dearly for in sending his son. The bread would just be a, a token to remember his body broken, beaten, pierced for your sin and my sin, for you and I to engage in a relationship with him. And it says that, that on that night when, when Jesus did this with his disciples, he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Oh, we should never forget what he did. Let's ask a blessing on the bread, shall we? God, 
we, we come with, with crackers, a, a token to remember. God, we want to pause right now and remember the cost. The extent that you went through to come in bodily flesh for a relationship with us. God, as we partake of the bread today, we thank you for your son. Broken and beaten for our sin. And we remember with gratitude. We ask a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we partake? So that same night, he would take the cup. Another wonderful picture of the blood that was shed for you and for me. It came at a cost. I appreciate David's statement. I will not sacrifice Something that did not cost me. It cost Jesus his life, his blood. It wasn't a cheap thing he did for you and me. Oh, but it was powerful. We remember, but we also reflect on the implications this has for you and I. The blood of Christ shed for your sin and mine. Do you know what that implication is? It means that you and I can have a relationship. Oh, what a blessing. Let's ask a blessing on this cup. God, we are reminded of the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. The perfect lamb of God, as John the Baptist would declare who comes to take away the sin of the world. What power, what passion, what love. Oh God, we praise you, we thank you. Oh God, may this not be something we partake of lightly, but truly appreciate. We ask a blessing on this cup in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we partake? You know, we remember what they were looking forward to. They were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. We remember what that Messiah did. But you and I have the opportunity to rejoice as well. Because as we rejoice, we look forward to once again the Messiah returning. And I have, I have the image of the kingdom of God. You guys can come on up. It's all right. I have the image of the kingdom of God because that's what we're looking forward to. When he returns, we will be a part of his kingdom. He will rule and he will rule eternally. What a blessing.
Let's stand together and sing and just rejoice together.